0: And as we pick up today, we are in uh, part 19 of our Faithful High Priest series in the book of Hebrews. We've been going through this since the beginning of the year as a part of the theme for our year of faithfulness. And my wife and I had the privilege of being here while Lance kicked off this uh, year of faithfulness series. We were interviewing and he laid out what it meant that we were going to pursue faithfulness. That we were going to pursue being people who honor God in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, by living faithful lives before God. And so it only made sense uh, to Lance uh, that we would start in the book of Hebrews, a book that talks about God's faithfulness to us that's where it's uh, from just top to bottom, from start to finish, that God is a faithful God. He's fulfilled his promises, his love is never failing, and he's faithful to complete his work to the very end. And so therefore, faithfulness, as we walk through this book of Hebrews, has been unlaid week after week after week. And I've got to tell you, it's exciting. I mean, I, I am super jazzed that our God is a faithful God. But if I'm really honest with you all, sometimes I'm pretty humbled. I mean, did you read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith? And did you see the names that are in there? Guys like Noah and Abraham and Moses. And I look at my life and my faithfulness, I compare it to theirs and I go, man, I'm lacking, you know? Like, I I want to be faithful, God. I want to follow you. I'm looking for this opportunity where I can go and build an ark or I can go and lead a people out of slavery for you. I'm looking for this huge opportunity of faithfulness, God. And when you call, I'll be ready. But if I look at that that list in hebrews chapter 11 do you know how many names are on that list there's 18 names out of all the believers up to that point in time who made it on that list and it makes me wonder so were the other you know hundreds of thousands of followers of god was their life insignificant did they matter to what god was trying to accomplish in the kingdom and i have to say yes yes those people matter because the kingdom is built on the backs of faithful people that God used. Not always in these huge watershed moments in history, but as they walked with the Lord, with their family, and their marriage, and the context that God placed them in. And so therefore, for you and for me, we shouldn't be discouraged at these stories of faithfulness in the Bible because none of these people were faithful in one solitary moment of time and not defined them. Faithfulness is not just, just dependent upon our ability in the moment when God knocks on the door to say yes to God. Faithfulness, I believe, is our ability day by day, moment by moment, second by second, to respond in obedience to God as he leads us and guides us. That's what practical faithfulness is. And so today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to understand that faithfulness with feet looks a certain way, that the faithfulness that God has called us to is one that is a response to him, because faithfulness is not just a mental ascent, that we have faith in God, we believe that Jesus is God's son, the savior. And then we wait for our, basically our ticket to get punched into heaven. That's not what faith is. Faith is this lifestyle of obedience and faithfulness, we'll find, is an intensely practical matter. And so as we look today in the scriptures, we'll see as the book of Hebrews turns a corner here, we've talked about Jesus as our high priest, Jesus as the faithful sacrifice, Jesus who will never ever quit us, he'll never leave us behind. We can understand that because Jesus was faithful, we can be faithful too. Because Jesus endured to the very, very end, we can too. And because Jesus keeps his promises to us and never leave us or forsake us, then we can be faithful to him. And so the fill in the blank today, if you have uh, the outline there... I'm used at uh, Bridgeway Young Adults on Tuesday nights to about 16, 18 fill-in-the-blanks. And so today, we've got a whopping three blanks here, okay? So uh, so we're being merciful to you. But uh, the 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 fill-in-the-blank today that we need to understand is this, is that Jesus' faithfulness enables our own. Jesus' faithfulness enables our own. You see that Jesus didn't microwave faithfulness. Jesus modeled to us that faithfulness is a long obedience in the same direction. Jesus literally could have come, he could have carved out five minutes in in his heavenly planner to come down and accomplish his work on the cross. He could have said, okay guys, I'll be back in just a second, I'm going down, I'm already the perfect lamb, he goes down, he takes the bullet for mankind, he dies a painful death for our sins, Uh, later in in minutes, he's resurrected again to powerful life, and all of a sudden he's accomplished his task on earth, he goes back up to heaven, it's done. Faithfulness, just like that, the snap of a finger. But we see that Jesus' life was a life that didn't come from immediate obedience, but rather a long path of faithful obedience as he came as a baby in a manger. and As he grew up as a young man, he had pimples. (laughs) He went through puberty. He went through the the angst and, and the awkwardness of all that stage of life. And for 30 years of obscurity, Jesus walked the earth. We'd rarely see or hear anything about his life. And so finally, he comes forth to be baptized by John the Baptist to begin his ministry And even then, he didn't start with his disciples by gathering these 12 ragamuffin dudes and sitting them down and saying, okay, guys, here's a seminar. Here's how we're going to do the kingdom of God in three days. Now, it took him three years of inviting those guys to walk alongside of him, to follow in his footsteps before they learned the kingdom. And even then, they felt ill-prepared to be faithful to carry it out. And Jesus, in his final week, he walked faithfully the path God set before him, even to the point of surrendering himself unto his accusers of being whipped and beaten and flogged. And he surrendered himself to be crucified on a cross. And even that process was a long one of anguish as each ragged breath he breathed, being faithful to God until the end, until he said, "'It is finished.'" And even then, what happens? He's laid in the ground for three days. Three days his cold dead body lays in the ground until resurrection power and life floods that tomb and fills him up and reinvigorates him in his resurrection body. He comes out of the tomb triumphant and then and only then does he say, okay, now this kingdom is marching forth and I'm inviting people into it because now my work is complete. And so what does that mean, this faithfulness? Well, if Jesus is faithful, if he can walk and endure day by day, moment by moment and obey the Lord, then he gives us the power to as well. That's the promise of the book of Hebrews. And that's what we're going to stand on today. And so if you would open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 13, if you have a Bible from under the chair there, the English Standard Version, page 1009, today we're going to learn about what it means to have this practical faithfulness. And so let's together read this chapter of Hebrews and then unpack what it means for us in our lives and how we can walk faithfully with the Lord. Let's read Hebrews 13 verse 1 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he throws in a little PS here at the end. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. You go, whoo! <laughs> Man! He just unloads at the end. It's as if he just wants to get his brain clear to encourage the people with every every encouragement of faithfulness he possibly can think of. And so today, uh, because Lance is usually more of a Gatling gun, get, get 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 you know, Lance just goes verse after verse after verse and just unloads on us. Today uh, we have to be careful because um, this is more of a, a line of shotgun shells. And one by one, the Hebrew author he loads them up, and he unloads on the people. How can you be faithful? How can you understand? And he just sprays it wide and, he, and he, he hopes that we can go deep together. And so today we're going to need God's help to do this. And so let's pray together and let's dive in to this book of Hebrews. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your promise of faithfulness, God. I thank you for the journey we've walked together since January to understand what that means, God. Your overwhelming mercy and grace, God, and the Savior who never leaves us or forsakes us. God, but today we, uh, we honestly need your help, Father, because your faithfulness calls us to a response. And a faithful God, uh, it only makes sense He you'd have faithful people, Lord. So we need help. God, we need your power. God, we need your spirit to convict us and align our hearts with faithfulness this morning. God, would you please do that? Enter into our midst, God, and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Hebrews chapter 13, verse one. Let's get down to the bottom of this and understand the path to faithful living. So the first thing is, Let brotherly love continue. It's basically let brotherly love go on and on and on and on and on. This is a present continuous action. And it's interesting because the Greek word he uses here for brotherly love uh, is something you're familiar with. Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love is based on this Greek word, philos, which is is a brotherly type of love. And Philadelphia is love for the brothers. So literally it says "Let let love for the brothers keep on going and going and going and going. Why is that important? Because if we come into this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have not love, then we are really an empty community. We're a resounding gong. We're just a group of people gathered together. This might as well be an HP conference. And so the thing that sets us apart is our love for one another. And Jesus says that you will know that they are Christians by their love so therefore, he begins by saying that practical faithfulness means loving one another in some very practical ways, and he outlines them one by one by one. But our love for each other, our love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, needs to be what defines us as Christians, because if we can't love our own, how can we love anybody else in the world? It should be easiest to love the Christian brother and sister, but sometimes it's not so easy. I mean, I understand the parking lot after nine o'clock service can be a test of your brotherly love, Okay. But if we can make it out without honking, without hating, without without, cursing our neighbor, if we can show them brotherly love and kindness, if we can start here, then we can go to the ends of the earth with the love of Christ. And so that's why this practical faithfulness is important. And he goes on taking this this philos, this brotherly love, and threading it through some interesting places. And he says in verse 2, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so that's that's pretty cool. So hospitality, you know, I know, I know about hospitality. You know, you see some people with some laners on, they're part of the hospitality team. <laughs> they're here to smile at you and give you a piece of paper. <laughs> is that hospitality? Is that, is that the sum of it? Are we supposed to be making coffee for people? Well, this word for hospitality here has some also deep intrinsic meaning that's uncovered as we look at the Greek because it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. He says it because literally the word hospitality is philo, again that love brotherly love word, philoxenius. It's love a stranger. That's what hospitality is. It's to show love for a stranger, somebody that you do not know. And so he says don't neglect to show it because apparently some people were forgetting to love not just the brothers and sisters they know but people that they would not even met yet. And this hospitality to strangers is something that was so important in the New Testament world. Because if you remember, they didn't have you know, uh, a Priceline negotiator to get their hotel reservations. If you're going on a journey, you walk in the dusty roads of Palestine, you roll into a city, you probably weren't able to prepare many uh, accommodations for you. So you roll in, you don't have any any place to stay, you don't know the people, you might get gouged by people trying to take advantage of you price-wise, you might get mugged by people who are dishonest. And so as Christians going from place to place, as they traveled about, they relied upon the hospitality of brothers and sisters in Christ, people that they had not even met before. So this is hard for us today because instead of having uh, an open-door policy, many of us have made our homes our castles. And our castle works like this. We open the drawbridge, we drive in the garage, and we shut the drawbridge, and we keep the world out. A love for strangers is something we have a hard time with. And so to, to be obedient to this, to be faithful to this call, we have to show love to people that we don't know, people that need our help, people that need our practical love. And it says here, this weird This weird back end of the verse says, "For thereby some have entertained angels unawares." What does that mean? Are we supposed to go back through our guest log and you know maybe go, "Wow, was that person an angel? Was that person an angel?" You know, I, I did find a feather in the bed after they came, so who knows? You know, maybe so. I didn't check them for wings. What does that mean? Well, uh, we find in the Old Testament a couple examples of literally angels visiting people. Uh, in Genesis 19 and 20, Abraham gets a visit from the Lord and two angels. And Lot also gets a visit in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that didn't go very well at all. And so are we to expect that God is going to send angels knocking on our door? And if so, how can we tell? If you, how many of you all have seen the movie Michael back in the day with John Travolta? Okay. <laughs> Uh, Thank goodness for modern Hollywood uh, depictions of angels, because now I can tell that if someone shows up in a trench coat at my doorstep with their wings sticking out the bottom, I should probably let that person in because God wants me to entertain an angel. Or maybe if you've seen the Adjustment Bureau, uh, we can tell an angel because they're the ones wearing the funny hats, right? So that's how we can easily tell who they are. But in reality, I, I would probably guess that, uh, that just like these people in the Old Testament, this brotherly love, this hospitality to strangers we're supposed to show is not one that shows discretion because if a person can't produce their angel membership card at the door, uh, you still probably have to let them in, okay? It's not just meant to say, well, I hope you're an angel and therefore I'll, I'll make a spot for you. If God wants to send angels in disguise to your house, I, I would probably say that you would probably not be the wiser because God is capable of disguising that angel. And in this circumstance here, when we look at at Abraham a lot, when they showed hospitality to angels, they knew that they were entertaining heavenly hosts. And so for us today, I think a right understanding of this verse is, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The Greek word for angel is angelos, which means messenger. And so whether or not God sends angels to our doorsteps, if he does, that's great. I'll gladly entertain them. But in either case, when people are dropped on our doorstep, with divine appointments that God has prepared for us, who knows that they might be a special messenger from God, meant to help you to impart some truth, to challenge you in some way. And if you deny them hospitality, you might be missing out on a huge blessing from the Lord. And so show hospitality to strangers, because you never know who God might be bringing across your path. And this is a challenge for us, but I think if we're faithful in this, we'll see some blessings in unexpected ways. Okay, let's go on. In Verse 3 it says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Yet again, another practical faithfulness issue here. And again, sometimes God sends people to our doorsteps knocking, but other times, according to this verse, there are people we have to go and seek out to show brotherly love to. The prisoner, the person who is locked up, probably in this Hebrew context, on account of their faith, these people who were, who were there were relying upon the love, the brotherly love, the practical provision of their family, friends, and those who wanted to help them because they couldn't. There wasn't a meal plan. The government didn't take care of them. If they were going to be taken care of, it had to be by people who remembered them. And empathy is a huge part of brotherly love because consider this. Consider the prisoner who sits alone in his prison cell day after day. Alone, contemplative, maybe guilty. How does that person feel? Have you ever put yourself in their shoes? And brotherly love, I would say, I'd go so far as to say Christian love is that we look into the eyes of people who are not like us and imagine what it must be to be like them. What must they be feeling? What must they be needing? And how can we practically go and meet their needs? And so therefore, one of the ministries of Bridgeway has started to address a practical need is Bridgeway Prison Ministry. They're going into the prisons, into the juvenile hall facilities to go and show love to prisoners who need God's grace brought to them tangibly through loving, welcoming people who accept them. And so therefore, uh, we're supposed to remember those who are in prison as though we are there with them. Why? Because we are still in the body. Because as long as we're stuck here in the flesh on earth, God has a mission for us to do. And if there are those who are mistreated in the name of Christ or otherwise, he has given it unto us to go to them to show them Christian love. And so brotherly love is trickling down to all sorts of places. And in verse 4, he unpacks something that hopefully, if we can wrap our arms around this, will transform not only our lives, but our families and our communities as well. Check out verse 4. He says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let this, that, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So now this this issue of how we love our spouses comes in. And uh, I'm kind of um, a closet Star Wars fan, I'll tell you that, okay? So how many of you guys are Star Wars fans in the house today? All right, so I say closet because I'm not very good at it. But there's one thing I know, that uh, when Yoda says something, people should listen, right? <laughs> And so, looking at this, looking at this uh, again from from a Greek perspective here, there's some some strange phraseology here that sounds kind of to me like wisdom that Yoda would impart to somebody. And so today, I want to give you it straight from the Greek and understand uh, the the significance here of what this text says. Okay. And so, if you want to all get your best you know Star Wars hat on with me, mm, you know. We're going to get our Yoda on here, okay? But listen to these words. They're so prophetic, and I can't... I really have to do it justice, and I'm going to attempt my best Yoda voice right now. So here we go. So literally, this is how it reads in Greek. It says, Mm. (laughs) honorable, the marriage, Mm. the bed, undefiled, Mm. (laughs) okay? So what the heck does that mean? What the heck? Hey, thank you very much. I know, right? Yeah, Lance doesn't have carte blanche on dorkiness around here, so... He's not the only one. He's not alone. And so, therefore, what does this mean? Honorable the marriage. That's what it says literally in Greek. And that's it. It leaves it at that. Honorable the marriage. Well, if you look at that man, that, that statement there, that marriage is honorable, it needs some translation here. And if you look at the word honorable, where else it appears in the New Testament, honorable is also a word that's used for costly stones, for priceless stones. And so, you could translate this, costly is marriage. Priceless is marriage like precious stones. Elsewhere, Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 119 to describe the precious blood of Christ. So what's the, what's the significance? What's the honor we are to show marriage amongst the family of believers? We are to hold it in the highest regard as priceless. It's not to be drugged through the mud. It's not to be discounted as, as just a verbal agreement between two people that can be easily dissolved. It's a promise before God, and marriage should be honored by all. In brotherly love, we respect and we protect each other's marriages, and we leave other people's spouses alone. We encourage the union that God has brought there. Why? Because the marriage bed is not to be defiled. It says in non-Yoda Greek, (laughs) "the bed undefiled." What does that mean? Okay, does that mean you're not supposed to eat crackers in bed? You know. Finally, there's a scripture: "Stop eating in bed. You're messing the thing up." Is that what it means? No, obviously not. To the bed undefiled, the marriage bed, it's a euphemism for sexual intimacy, okay? It doesn't mean wash your sheets regularly, all right? It doesn't mean do a better job of that. Literally in college, I knew a guy for four years. He did not wash his sheets in college. Wow. So we're talking about like, like preparing yourself, single people out there for marriage. Listen, start washing your sheets early, Okay. But what does this mean? It has two practical implications. For married people, it means this. It means that to keep the marriage bed undefiled is to keep from bringing things that corrupt the marriage into your bed. And that doesn't just mean other people. And that doesn't just mean your bed. It means in any bed, with any person, you should protect your marriage by simply keeping sexual intimacy for your spouse. There's a great quote by a guy named Andy Stanley. He says this. He says, your spouse is your only legitimate source of sexual intimacy. Think about that. Your spouse is your only well for sexual intimacy. If you go to drink from any other well to be satisfied, you're going to the wrong place, according to Scripture. So therefore, we can't go running to images on a computer to try to gratify ourselves sexually somehow. Why? Because we drag that into bed with us, and the bed is defiled. And whether your spouse knows or not, when you bring that junk into bed with you, you're creating a wedge, a, a, a source of division in your marriage, and you're depriving your wife of your full attention. And so, therefore, it can't happen. The fantasy you have about your coworker, worker the, the idea of some, some way you might be able to get away with something someday, if only you could find the right opportunity, that's all sin. And we need to cut all that sin off at the pass, So therefore, we have to guard our marriages, guard our hearts, because it's not okay for us to bring defilement into the marriage bed. We have to be tenacious about this, people, because the statistics say that we're no better than the world at holding our promises and covenants in marriage. So what does that say? It means we need to to grow up. We need to protect that which is valuable and costly to God and see the things that he calls valuable as valuable to us as well. So... Understand that. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. And for you single people out there, just very briefly, just because you don't have a marriage bed yet, doesn't mean you should go, Yay, I can do what I want. It's not a license for you to go and to taste the fruit and to sow your wild oats and to, you know, just check out the merchandise before you buy. That is all sin as well, because God has entrusted to you purity. God has given you a bank account. He's given you an entrustment that says, Guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. And so when you go out and you share that with other people, when you don't respect the marriage bed, euphemism, and in sexual intimacy, you give it to person after person after person, you're robbing yourself of what you can bring to your spouse one day. And if you've, if you've messed up, if you've sinned in this area, God's grace is sufficient for you. And he says, listen, understand my will for marriage, protect it, view it as costly, and from now on, honor me in your sexuality. Hold dear your purity and don't give it away. Because if you squander your purity on other people or if you steal it from others, you're guilty of sexual immorality. And God says that the sexually immoral and the adulterer will be judged. Of course, we all know that judgment is what awaits all of us at the end of eternity. And if we have the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from sins, then we have a guarantee that he is going to welcome us with open arms. So what does that mean? It means that if we're in Christ, though, we don't use Christ as a license to sin and do what we want because we know we can ask forgiveness. That's immature. And if we're to be faithful people, we need to be faithful to God in every opportunity. So keep the marriage bed undefiled and understand that sexual intimacy is to be reserved for the spouse that God entrusts to you. And if God doesn't choose to entrust a spouse to you, if he gives you a life of singleness, honor God with your singleness and your sexuality. Let's move on. Verse 5. This love thread kind of goes one, one further step here. And it's love, love, love. And now in verse 5, don't love. Okay? Verse 5 says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So what does this mean? He says, okay, love your brother. Okay, Love the stranger. Love the prisoner. Love your spouse. But don't love money. It's interesting because even intrinsic in this word, it's a, it's a big nasty Greek word. But it's aphilos, not love, guros, money. Not love money, okay? And so this love thread here, he said, love all this stuff for sure. But when you love money, you do yourself a disservice and you do God a disservice. Why? Because the love of money messes up our ability to show proper love to God and others. What do I mean by that? Well, when we're selfish, when we're self-absorbed, we can't be open-handed and generous with what God entrusts to us. Furthermore, have you seen that show Hoarders on TV, you know, people who are afraid that the world is going to crumble around them. So what do they do? They build for themselves a fort, right? They have food. They got stockpiled gold nuggets. I mean, they got ammunition to take down, you know, the capital. I mean, they were ready because when push comes to shove and the bottom falls out, they want to be secure. But when we try to place our security on things that our hands can grasp and kingdoms we can build for ourselves, we're really just building a sandcastle. And as all of us know from this recent economic upturn, the things that were so secure, our jobs, our houses, our incomes, that can all fall out in a matter of moments. And unexpectedly, we are humbled and we are put to the test. Where does your trust lie? Because whatever whatever you cling to and when the rug comes out, whatever you jump after, that's probably the thing you put your security in. And if you cling for money as it goes away, you realize that, man, I am I am enslaved i'm i'm in this consumer mindset and i just want more i want more i want more so i can feel comfortable so i can feel safe and god says that's not honoring to me because whatever you trust most really becomes your god and if money is your god it's going to let you down one day you might feel secure now you might feel comfortable but ultimately money will fail us and so therefore we are supposed to according to the scriptures we're supposed to put our trust in the Lord because his promise never will fail us. It says, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's this promise from Deuteronomy 31, 6. It's a promise to Joshua who he's like, okay, uh, I've been following Moses all this time. And God says, okay, Moses, he's not going into the promised land. But guess who's in charge now? You. The griping, groaning nation of Israel who's walked wayward for 40 years. You're in charge. Congratulations. And freaked out of his gourd, I think God says this to Joshua to give him hope. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If the road ahead of you looks scary, your God is a God who's never going to let you down. And so he says, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's our mentality we have to have. Because if we put our trust and hope in money, stuff, in this world, it's going to let us down, people. And if these Hebrew people were not able to build their trust on a God who would never fail them, then they were doomed, and their faith was sure to fail. So therefore, we should put our trust in the Lord. Verse 7. He gives us an illustration of faithfulness then that shows us how we ought to live. He says in verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's interesting because uh, when I thought of the leaders in my life, not every leader who spoke the word of God in my life is somebody I probably want to follow. Many of you have been in churches... Where the leader did not set a good example and honestly i'm glad that this church exists because if it weren't for this church Many of you might not even be in the faith anymore because of a bad experience you've had with a leader who didn't follow god And when their indiscretion or their immorality came to light and their selfishness or their hurtfulness broke a church in half You stopped believing that that people were good. You stopped believing that god could use leaders and maybe you came in here with a wound and with a thorn in your heart, and you, and you came in here doubting that, that God could use people. And you found, hopefully here, an example of a place where there's godly leadership, where leaders can say confidently, follow me as I follow Christ. And if you are here and you're looking for an example for, for leaders, think about the person, go back to that person who spoke to you the word of God. Not the person who beat it over your head with a ruler when you were a child or shoved it down your throat. Think of the person literally who described to you for the first time this is Jesus. He is God's son. And whether that was an old lady with a flannel graph in Sunday school class, you know, in second grade, whether, whether it was a, cir- a circumstance like that where she described to you in the most basic of terms that Jesus loves you, something about her description, something about her, her life, her example, showed you this love, this acceptance from God. He says, remember that. Remember what made you want to follow Jesus in the first place as you saw Jesus with skin on through somebody else. Maybe it was your youth pastor maybe it was a, it was a pastor who did set a great example of faithfulness in his life and his conduct in his marriage but he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you why? Because we're supposed to look at the outcome of their life, those who have walked faithfully and imitate it. And the Greek word for that is this word "mimesthe." it literally is where we get the word mimic from. Mimic your leaders, mimic your godly leaders. Like a mime. Paint your face. If you want to follow Lance around one day and freak him out to death, you know, paint your face like a mime, dressed up, you know, put the gloves on and everything. Follow him around and mimic him. And hopefully his life, hopefully my life, hopefully the life of leadership in this church is a life that shows the love of Christ. Because guess what? Because as parents, you are leaders in your family. As teachers, you are leaders in your context. As employees or overseers or bosses, you are leaders. And the people will look at your life for an example of how to live. There's a movie called Remember the Titans, and it's got this little leadership lesson in there. And at one point in time, uh, one of the guys says to the other guys, listen, man, attitude reflects leadership. You've got, you got a crappy attitude. You need, to, you need to straighten up. You need to understand that, that how you lead is going to encourage other people to do the same. If you've got kids, you understand. It's like monkey see, monkey do with children, right? Have you ever seen your kid mimic some of your actions before? And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> they saw that. Oh, man, or a word? And you're like, oh, no, you know, that's not good. Why? Because, because the young people, the people who come behind us, are to see how we live, and they're supposed to mimic it. And so if you are a leader, which I would, I would guarantee almost every person in this room is a leader in some context, you have a tremendous responsibility to set the bar, to do like Timothy did, to set an example, despite of your youth, despite of the circumstances, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Because of this tremendous opportunity you have, this tremendous responsibility to live this life needs to compel you to practical living, to faithful living. So my question for you simply, in this would be, does your lifestyle inspire or discourage people from following Jesus? Does the way you live your life show Christ to others so that they want to follow him too? Because that's the end of, of practical faithfulness right there, is a life that looks like Jesus. And so sometimes when when people fail us, which sometimes humans do, we understand that. We understand that because a leader falls doesn't mean that God is not true, that God is not faithful. God can show grace to that person. God can restore that person. But what do we do when when the rug is pulled out from our leadership? He points us to an example in verse 8. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He says, Jesus is our perfect example. Jesus is one whose example will never let us down. He's one who never will fail us because he's the same yesterday and today and forever. And so when you're in doubt, look to Jesus and imitate his life. And because of Jesus, because of his life, because of example, he can help us in the midst of, of trials and temptations and turmoil. And in verse 9, we start to encounter this section where he, he brings some correction to the flock. And so verse 9 says this, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace grace not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So what does that mean? Okay, this, these diverse and strange teachings, these colorful and fanciful things that were sneaking into the church, what were those? Well, we've understood from the book of Hebrews that this is a, a Christian audience from a Jewish background and that there are Jewish people trying to pull them back into the life of legalism, the old covenant obedience. And so these people here apparently are relying on foods to strengthen their hearts, not grace. And so when we go back to the law, when we go back to whatever we relied on before Jesus and look to it to help us along, we're really discrediting what Christ has done for us. Because if the cross did not completely purchase our way, if the cross did not completely give us grace for this life, if there's anything else we have to add to it, if you have to add Jesus plus legalism to get into heaven, the cross was ineffective. If you have to add Jesus plus karma, your best efforts, your good luck, your works, Man, Jesus' cross was not effective. You've not, you've not understood grace. And so when you rely on foods or legalistic obedience to the old ways to strengthen your heart so you can feel good about yourself, you've missed the boat entirely. Because Jesus doesn't ask you to come along, to paddle hard, to, to work good, to, to, to try to meet this quota of good deeds in your life so that you can also get in because his grace wasn't enough. Jesus' grace is completely sufficient for your life. So how good is good enough? You can never be good enough. That's the whole point. But because of Jesus, he meets us where we're at in our sin. And he helps us to become followers of him. Not earning our salvation, but living out our salvation through him. And so that understanding, that lifestyle we have to live then, it changes us. And he goes on to explain this this image, this imagery from uh, the Day of Atonement and draws a parallel from the old way to the new way in Christ. And he says in verse 10, We, we Christians, we who walk a different path have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So we Christians, we live differently. We've got a different place to go to for our atonement than the tent, than the tabernacle, than the law. He says, "'For the bodies of those animals "'whose blood was brought into the holy places "'by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin "'are burned outside the camp. "'So Jesus also suffered outside the gate "'in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. "'Therefore let us go to him outside the camp "'and bear the reproach he endured. "'For here we have no lasting city.'" but we seek the city that is to come. So so what does that mean? That's a lot there. I mean, how do we unpack that? Well, very simply, very basically, we see some parallels drawn here between Jesus and the old sacrificial system because Jesus fulfilled the pattern of the old. And check out these parallels here. First of all, on the day of atonement, we had a flawless death. There were animals offered for sacrifice for atonement. The pouring out of blood was brought before the Lord to, again, cleanse us of our sins, cleanse the Old Testament crew of their sins and lastly the bodies were destroyed outside the camp and we look at jesus in his work and we see that jesus was a flawless death and jesus poured out his blood and that jesus ultimately was destroyed outside the camp outside the city walls and so why is this significant well some of you guys uh have um, gone on the uh, men's camping trip here at bridgeway before and so uh this camp analogy here outside the camp has some significance and very briefly it means this it's, it's pretty easy. When you're camping with a group of guys, okay, and you see a guy go with a shovel and a roll of toilet paper outside camp, <laughs> you know that he's going to do some business out there, right? You know that there's something happening outside the camp that's probably not meant to be inside camp, that there's defilement outside the camp. And so, uh, it, as though that, that's a stupid analogy, obviously. Although, although um, in our lives, we understand that, you know, we don't want that ickiness, we don't want that junk, we don't want filth inside the camp, uh, we understand that. In the Old Testament mentality, that was super clear to them, because God's whole system was set up so that if you were unclean, if you were ceremonially impure, if you had infectious skin diseases, or it was that time of the month, or, or all sorts of different things, if you touched a dead body, you had to go outside the camp because you were unclean. That's the place where defilement was meant to be, outside the camp. And the significance for us is we see that Jesus goes outside the camp. Jesus is sacrificed in that, that strange, scary, outside-the-camp-defiled place. What does that mean for us? And for the Jews, they're like, well, we can't follow a, a Messiah that's, that's crucified, that's cursed on a tree, that's hung on a cross outside the camp. But we see that God is intentionally setting up this metaphor so we'd understand that Jesus Christ came to become sin, to take on our defilements. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And Jesus dying outside the camp on the cross, he dies to put to death our sin and our defilement. And therefore, we don't go to an altar like the Old Testament year after year for our salvation. We have to go instead outside the camp. And how how strange is that, that Jesus doesn't invite us to a really cushy, sweet room? Moment of confession, sometimes I go to Massage Envy. I love it. (laughs) There's a room in there, and I kind of pictured when I came to Christ that this is how Christianity would be. There's a room in there, and they play quiet music, and they have these soft chairs, and you sit down, and you sip water, and it's the most peaceful, luxurious environment ever. And I would imagine, some of us do, when you come to Christ, that, oh man, this is what Jesus has for us. He's got a place inside the city. He's got a room all picked out, and here's where I'm going to sit and enjoy the rest of my life. But then all of a sudden we see Jesus saying, no, no, you're going the wrong direction. Don't go inside the city. The Christian life is not one of comfort and luxury and and just indulgence. No, no, you've got to come with me outside the city, because guess what? If you're going to come after me, you're going to follow me, you have to pick up your cross and deny yourself and come after me. And so in doing that, we turn our back on the things in this world that we might place our trust in. We give up, as one person said, what we cannot keep, this world, the security here, to gain what we cannot lose. And that's the promise of what Jesus Christ gives us outside the city. Yes, it might involve the rejection of your family. Yes, it might involve the end of your comfort and security in yourself and your efforts. But what we have is a promise that God will be there for us. That there is an everlasting city that if we go to Christ outside the camp, we can take part in. What an encouragement that is. And so therefore, because of all these things, he says in verse 15... He says, through him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice, a new sacrifice of praise to God. And it looks like this. It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's literally the harvest of a confession of Christ. As you confess Christ in your life, in any way, shape, or form, you're bringing him glory and praise as you live out that that grace before mankind. And you say, "I, I trust you, I love you, I serve you, Lord. It's praise unto God now. He says, do not neglect also to do good. And to share what you have for such sacrifices, again, are pleasing to God. So we don't have to bring Lammy you know, up to the altar, as Lance always talks about, and, and slay him you know, each month to cover our bases. And Lammy, we think, is, is a much easier way, but we understand that our sacrifice now is ourselves. We bring ourselves before God, our whole self, a living sacrifice to him, holy and pleasing to him. And that as we, as we do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do, And as we share, literally the word there is koinonia. You heard that word before? As we sell of our goods and our possessions and we give to those who have need, as we take care of the body of believers, we're worshiping God. This is our sacrifice. This is how we please him. And it goes on. He says, there's some other things we can do too. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them in verse 17. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So obey your leaders and submit to them. Okay, well, you know, that sounds kind of easy sometimes, but I, I wonder, and this thing makes me, makes me ask this question, have you ever been bitten by a sheep? Have you ever been bitten by a sheep? <laughs> I never have, but I've been bitten by a goat one time, and so have you, I went to a place one time where you feed uh, these baby goats bottles of milk. Have you ever done this before? It's, it's the coolest thing in the world. It's like, oh, I get to shepherd these tiny baby goats. Look at them. They're starving for this milk. And so for a dollar, you get five cents worth of milk in a bottle. And you go, and you, and you go into this goat pen where these, basically these, and these dazed goats who are like, they're just milk drunk, basically. And you go in there with your bottle, and you think you're going to save the day. You know, they probably drank six gallons of milk apiece, but I'm going in there to give them this milk. And so I'm like, okay, little baby goats, here I come, don't worry. And so I bring my bottle in then, and I find, because I'm a, a pastor, I'm a shepherd, I try to find, you know, the lost sheep. I go to the littlest, tiniest, most scrawny, gimpy-legged little goat, and I go over and, and give him a bottle. And as I'm feeding this, this precious little one here, what happens? But, gah, ah. A goat bit me on the butt, <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, this is not cool now. I'm like, get away, little goat! I'm trying to feed the little guy here, and all of a sudden, you know, they realize, oh, you've got milk. And what happens then? It's like a feeding frenzy of goats, and they're pawing, and I got poo on my shorts now, and they're like, you know, like ah, ah, and biting, and it's like, oh my gosh! And now instead of loving this little goat, I am kicking these goats, and I'm going, man, I hate you goats! And That's fine, I'm done, and I walk out, you know, all the way, just shaking the goats off me. And so, and so that experience made me realize that you know what, it's not cool. When the goats bite the hand that feeds them. And in the same way, it's not cool when the sheep bite the shepherd. That's what he's getting at here. That's not an offering pleasing to God. When the flock comes after the leaders that God has put in place. And makes what should be a joy for them to oversee their souls. (laughs) To watch out for their good. It makes it a groaning issue. Something they hate and despise. And so many pastors have washed out of ministry. Because they got into a context where the sheep ate them alive. Many of you escaped from such a church like that. You might have seen leader after leader after leader go down. And it's not pleasing to God when the sheep bite the shepherd. And so therefore, we need to, we need to encourage our leaders. And if you are part of this flock and you're incessantly nipping at the pastor, maybe you're in the wrong flock. Maybe you need to, we need to realize that our goal and our, our job as members of this body are to support and uphold and encourage our leaders. And the author of Hebrews gives us a very practical way to do that. He says, instead of biting the, the shepherd, he says, encourage him. In verse 18, he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly, pray, 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 pray. Do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And so instead of biting our leaders, we are supposed to pray for them and encourage them. And this this pastor here Who's encouraged these people, exhorted them. He desires so much to be a part of his, of his flock again, to go and love on them, and he desires their prayers. As a pastor of this church, and it's filling in today for Lance, I, I just encourage you to pray for the leaders of this church. Pray for the people who are guiding your children in faith, for the Kidsway staff, for the middle school, for the, for the high school staff. Pray for them, because they need encouragement as they watch over their souls of, of the flock Because it's not easy, and and if they get discouraged, if it becomes a burden, uh, it might do more harm than good for the kingdom. And so lastly then, with a shepherd's heart, he prays this prayer, this benediction, which is present in nearly every epistle, every letter of the New Testament. There's this blessing he prays on the flock, and I want to pray it over you as we read it. He says this, he says, Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. With every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, this pastoral blessing here is meant to encourage the flock to understand listen, flock, Jesus Christ, he has conquered death, he is our great shepherd, and he has given you everything you need to walk this path of faithfulness. Don't don't be discouraged. Don't complain. Don't go. God, you haven't given me enough. I want to see you more. God, I just I just need to hear from you. He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. He's given you the church. He's equipped you with everything you need to walk, to be faithful, to participate in godliness. And therefore, he says, realize you've been equipped with every good thing so that you can't take it to granted. You can't be selfish with it so you can do his will working that is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And so faithfulness, this practical faithfulness means that we walk this path in Christ's power and through his grace. And in conclusion, he has a few things to say. It's kind of like when you're writing a letter to somebody, you know, and it's a long letter and then at last you're like, oh man, like, by the way, uh, how's your grandma doing? And you know, uh, did your dog ever heal up from that thing? And so he throws in these, these random things at the end which actually show us his character, his heart, kind of his Facebook page, if you will, okay? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in verse 22, bear with my word of exhortation, For I've written to you briefly. You're like briefly, you know. Hebrews chapter thirteen was long in and of itself, let alone the whole rest of the letter. That's a brief letter, you know. Thanks, I'm glad you kept it brief. But if we consider what he could have gone to great lengths to explain here, I mean, all of the meaning of the fulfillment of the old covenant and the faithfulness of God, there is not enough ink on the earth or paper that you could fill pages with that could, could could do it justice. That could describe it well enough. And he says, listen, you guys, uh, bear with these exhortations because I've written to you briefly. I've summarized that as clearly and as simply as I can so you can understand and live it out. And then he gives us a little update on our, our friend and brother, Timothy, Paul's companion. He says in verse 23, you should know that our brother, Timothy, that young, timid dude who was afraid, who Paul had to encourage in those pastoral letters. Timothy's now a rock star in the church. He's a pastor. He's a shepherd. He's a leader. He says that Timothy has been released. Likely from prison, it sounds like. Like Timothy, rocking it for the gospel, got locked up for what he was doing for Jesus. And look, when Timothy gets released, he's, he's barren, he's raring to go. He's going to be out of the gates and he's coming. With whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So together he's going to travel back to this flock again to encourage them. And then lastly, this part to me is hilarious, okay? Verse 24. He says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Tell everybody I said hi. And then lastly, in the background, you got these Italian guys, apparently, as he's writing this letter, you know, making pizza, you know, hey, you know, and tell him we said ciao, you know, and they're like, oh, he's like, okay, fine. He's like, ah, oh. and those who come from Italy send you greetings. Are you guys happy? You know, what's the significance of that? Really? Well, the cool thing is, I don't think he just threw that in, you know, for grins and giggles. Listen to this. Those who come from Italy, you know, where, you know, where Jesus started, you know, where the whole thing began in Jerusalem. It began in the backwoods of Palestine, and now this message of the gospel has traveled all the way to Rome, all the way to the the capital of the empire, and now Italians are coming to Christ. Those people, those pagans who walked apart from Christ, are now saying, hey man, tell those Christians we said hey. Seriously? That's amazing. It's an amazing testimony to the power of God to work through his people if they're faithful to do what they put in front of them. And that did not happen through these, again, these huge moments. It happened because God's people chose to live a life of practical faithfulness day after day after day. And his conclusion to them is be encouraged because God's promise never fails. His faithfulness to you you enables your faithfulness to him. And he says, grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Don't do it by your own power. Don't do it by your own steam. Remember God's grace and walk and live in that. And that's our challenge, that we would not, See faithfulness as this mission, this checklist, but we would see faithfulness as a mission of grace to live with love, a faithful life before our Heavenly Father and with our brothers and sisters. Let's pray, and then I'll give you the closing challenge. God, we thank you for this invitation to follow you, Father. God, we know it's an invitation because we're not deserving of it, God, that we are so wayward and errant, God, when we walk in our own ways. God, we are thankful that you've called us sons and daughters, that you've equipped us with this great love, God, this great power, this great call. God, and you believe that through the faithfulness of your people that great things can still happen, Father. We pray that powerful prayer that you continue to guide us so we can lead other people, Father, to faith in you. God, we love you and we so much thank you for this entrustment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, before you leave, the closing challenge is this week, put faithfulness into practice, okay? This week, make another change in your life in an area that Christ is challenging you in. So therefore, every time you look at your clock, every time you look at your phone, remember as the second hand clicks by that you've been given another opportunity for faithfulness and walk with God in that.